Well, we're going to pause tomorrow, aren't we, for what Australians consider, most Aussies consider the most sacred day of the year, Anzac Day. And what is it? A day to remember. It's a day to honour those who have gone before. And it's a day to prize the legacy of the life that we enjoy in this land. It's a day to solemnly contemplate the magnitude of the sacrifice which some of, our, some of us will have direct descendants, grandfathers and great-grandfathers, to remember their sacrifice for that British version of liberal democracy, which is our national heritage. It's also a day to tell the story of two relatively new nations, Australia and New Zealand, tested in the crucible of fire for the first time. And it's a story about these outposts of Britain Interestingly, their foreign policy, who, what was it? It was basically Britain's foreign policy at that stage. And they stepped for the first time into international warfare. And we had 20,000 AIF soldiers landed at dawn at Gallipoli. And by the end of that campaign, they lost some 8,700 of them in there. So that's what we remember mostly about Anzac Day, Gallipoli, isn't it? It's not a memorable day because of triumph and victory, no. And it's not really memorable just because of the dreadful casualties. It's remembered because it's an identity thing. It's the first time that the Australian and the New Zealanders participated in that international battle, the first dance of a new nation on the big dance floor. And we don't celebrate any triumphant warrior spirit like they do in the wrestling and the boxing and the MMA. It was seen very much as a battle for freedom from tyranny. And of course, the Anzacs, the Aussies and New Zealanders did it in their own unique way. What was that unique way? Well, they were a long way away from the motherland, half of the world away, and they had their own unique response to authority, didn't they? thing was they were far enough away from what had been in Europe centuries of class distinctions, centuries of the royals and the bishops and the upper class and the lower class. So far away that they could in large part ignore those distinctions and take great pride in considering that anybody who was here was equal because there were far less of those aristocratic people over here. And the average guy, well, he sort of accepted that they were there and he expected that they would do their job, look after the big ticket items, but mostly the everyday Aussie was left to his own devices in what was a very demanding environment. Tie that in with a strong convict demographic tied in with some really adventurous free settlers and what you tied in with a harsh country and what it meant was people needed one another to survive and some of the conversations I've had with people about mucker is that the older generation part of the community was that sense of community was forged because you needed one another very much nowadays we have machines which make the reliance on one another not as much as it used to be but at that time the physical fitness that was required to survive in Australia, that sense of mateship 
and that you know scant regard for authority meant that when they got there this Australian force were fearsome warriors in fact the, the World War One Australians were considered by many to be some of the best shock troops around you know we can't get this thing send the Australians in they'll knock it over for us and I researched in this area one of the a remarkable army chaplain he became known as Fighting Mackenzie I think some of you've I uh, heard about fighting Mackenzie, and as I read, uh, not perhaps the most flamboyant version of his story, but a fairly realistic version, I was both inspired and it was also very dreadful. Because amidst the horrors of war, you've got this chaplain, William Mackenzie, who displayed heroism, he had a willingness to suffer with the guys, and he carried an indomitable spirit of cheeriness and hope. That was one of his big jobs, to always be cheerful and hopeful. And then he had an unbelievable work ethic and a remarkable endurance in the face of dysentery. He got dysentery. In in endurance in the face of the diabolical smell of the corpses that he would dig out of trenches and then bury them. Sometimes they were three or four deep in the trenches. And at the same time, bullets are whistling around, shrapnel's exploding. He's a Christian, living out his faith in a dreadful time. And so, what are we to make of Anzac Day we're going to celebrate tomorrow? What are we going to remember about it? Why are we going to remember about it? What are we going to celebrate and, and maybe seek to copy? And I think that one of the most stirring things about Anzac Day is that notion of sacrifice, the sacrifice that others made for us. And we could debate endlessly the rights and wrongs of the war and the ideal ideologies, the beliefs which were playing in the public mind space. We could debate the greed and the money-making desires which actually promote and foster wars. We can debate the pride of leaders who want to take their nations into battle. But the simple truth captivates our minds is that people did what they did for their families and they did what they did for their nation and they did what they did for us they were willing to accept the possibility that they might not come back and in the face of the fear of not coming back they still acted and that's what courage is and they sacrificed many of them, their lives for us. And that's what our leader Jesus did also for us. You see, I think when we see people following in Jesus' footsteps, following his example, that really inspires us. And just look a little bit at Jesus' example when he showed us how to sacrifice. Turn to Romans 5 verse 6 if you will. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for, who did he die for? The ungodly. Who, who's that in, who does that include? It includes all of Australia, doesn't it? Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But 
The amazing thing is that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As the guys have mentioned, we just had Good Friday and we remembered the battle that Jesus was in where he was flogged. And, and, you know, flogging, not everyone survived even being flogged. They didn't always make it to the cross. And then he made it to probably the most painful way of dying that the Romans, experts in death, had created. He was crucified. And so as you put together Anzac Day with the dreadfulness of war we hear there, just put together the fact that our Saviour also experienced the dreadfulness of war. And he showed us first how to sacrifice. And then the other big word is service. He showed us how to serve. You know, one of the core values of the Australian Defence Forces is service. And they look for, when they recruit people, they look for people who want to help others, people who want to serve others, not just people who want to get out and shoot rabbits. And that's the Christian value. And our Saviour has shown us that example first. Let's look at it in Philippians 2.5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here's now his servant, his servant attitude who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. And that's Jesus showing us how to serve, even possibly to the point of death. Because we have Anzac Day tomorrow, I'd like to give a few more details about this uh, chaplain fighting Mackenzie. He was a Salvation Army officer. And he really knew how to serve. He was assigned to a unit of the army. They were sent off to go to England, never made it, ended up in Egypt because there's no room left in England. And they went through a preparation period before they went off to combat. And this Salvation Army guy went out on the tr training exercises with the men. And then in the evenings he organised concerts, wholesome concerts, he organised games, involved, he organised various events to keep them from... Uh, descending to the worst side of life and he was very talented in those things but I'll add to that he helped with the soldiers correspondence because you see it was wartime and all the letters that were sent to and from sent by the guys had to be censored someone had to read it and the guys would rather the chaplain read it than the colonel read it because he might uh, discipline them but the chaplain was a, a good bet and Fighting Mackenzie was really good with names. He remembered people's names. He was good with the Aussie banter. And by the time the ship which sailed from Albany got to the Suez Canal, he'd gone from being unknown to being one of the most well-known people on board. And yet his greatest contribution was when he got to Gallipoli. He relates that a typical day's work was about 18 hours. And sometimes he got no sleep because after the day's work, 
he had funerals which he conducted and it was a little bit safer at night time. In between time, whenever he could, he'd lend a helping hand, maybe carry one end of a stretcher, maybe uh, carry the precious water tent tainted with the taste of what was in them before, you know, because, you know, it might have had caro in it, might have had petrol in it. They'd add water and carry it off to the diggers. One time he noticed there was a treacherous steep hillside and the guys were having trouble getting over it, so he had a free night, so he went out and he dug, step, he dug steps in it. When he overheard a wish for eggs or chocolates, he went scrounging all over the peninsula and turned up later with a crate of eggs and chocolates on his shoulder. In the midst of that war zone, Sundays at 4pm we would have church services. And why 4pm? Because that seemed to be when the Turks would have their main meal and then they'd be quiet for a while afterwards. And what's the heart of this guy? Well, just before, and you've heard of Lone Pine, the Battle of Lone Pine, before that, as Mackenzie was looking at the people he was preaching to, he looked into the faces of the men and he had a tremendous sense of his solemn responsibility because some of them wouldn't be there next Sunday. And he was just obsessed with the idea and yearned with unutterable longing that they would come to know the Saviour. Some people say that his ministry, some 3,000 people became Christians. He said, you're very near the eternal here. All subterfuges are literally torn aside and you're treading on the threshold between the eternal world and marching in step with the sinister shadow of death. His role during that and after that battle of Lone Pine has probably been exaggerated a bit here and there, but we do know some important things. That he went with the men, and he went with, a, some say, a stick, some say an entrenching tool, in other words, a spade, and a bandana. And apparently he got the military cross for rallying these guys who are coming back because they're... they're uh, their leaders had been shot. They were leaderless. And apparently he had this way of looking at you. But you knew, all right, I'll get back and get into it. So he rallied them. You know, over three weeks there, he buried 450 men. And after just the, f the first four days, the smell was so overpowering that he'd have to climb out of the trenches sometime just to throw up. And he said at one time he found four dead Australians on their knees. It's 11.28am. <laughs> Thank you, Siri. That spoils the moment, doesn't it? <laughs> All right. So he found four dead Australians on their knees. They'd been gravely wounded, but they knelt to pray as they were dying. There's other things about, about this man. There's a couple of quotes from people about him. A personal willingness to expose yourself in danger was the one attribute a chaplain had to possess in order to win the respect of the men to whom he was trying to minister. And another guy said, the reason your church parades were tremendously popular is because we're all ready to listen to the preacher. 
was not afraid to die with us. And I think his life is an example of if you're going to follow Jesus' desire to serve, how you might do it in a dreadful time of war. And, and when we think about Anzac Day, we're not saying war is good in any way, shape or form, because Christians have never considered killing to be a good thing. We take very seriously what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You see, Jesus didn't come and create wars, did he? He didn't. Some of his closest followers thought he would look, they should, but he, he didn't, so they couldn't work out what he was up to because God's ways are different. And so as we think about a response to the issue of war, what is that difference? What is about peace, being a peacemaker? Is it just about avoiding conflict? No. Its deepest motivation is love. Look at 1 John 3. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. That's the opposite, isn't it? Love is the thing. Don't have that. What's it say in the next verse? You'll be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And verse 14, anyone who does not love remains in death. You see the two contrasts. And the Apostle John saw very clearly that the power to overcome warfare has to be in love. And 1 John 3.16 he says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And he showed that the unique thing about Jesus' way is laying down your life. And we find the same power to do that through our belief in him. Because belief in Jesus and love, they go together like hands in a glove. In verse 23, and this is his command, to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, believe in the name and what is coupled with it, and to love one another as he commanded us. Belief and love. And so overcoming wars really starts in us. Not in overcoming the enemy. The first enemy is ourselves. And the true warrior gets their relationship with Jesus right first. And war, that's just the last step if it can't be avoided. There's no simple solution though. It's not a simple thing because life is complicated. And that's why in tough times you need to stay close to Jesus. You need to stay close to the word of God so you can work out what your response should be in a time of war. And war itself has changed, hasn't it? It's changed from what we saw back in those days, a country against country, to more and more it's the rich elite and the corporations they control that are against the peoples of the world. And the, where we conduct the war is not just on the physical back, battlefield like in the Ukraine, because there's biological warfare with viruses, there's a mind space war with control of the stories they'll feed to the news outlets, there's censorship of what you can say in social media platforms, even to the point of Google controls the things that will come up when you search certain topics. And the plain fact is that us, the average guy, the average Bruce, Mary or Alfonso, 
we don't want war. And the Anzacs that went to the war were just normal blokes like us and they didn't want the war. And they went to fight other people from another country who were normal blokes who didn't want the war. They had just been told by their leaders that they were now at war. What's a Christian response to warfare? Well, first to acknowledge that there is a war going on. Ephesians 6 tells us that. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God and here's the war so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, it's against the authorities, it's against the powers of this dark world. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And eventually, you can trace all warfare back to the devil's schemes. Because, you know, Garden of Eden, there were no problems before he came along, were there? And though God does call some people to actually be soldiers, in general, we're called to use different tools from those they hand to the men and women in uniform. And Ephesians 6 tells us what they are. Stand firm there with, there's the first tool, the belt of truth. Buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Jesus' righteousness. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And you take out the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And you take the helmet of salvation through faith in Jesus. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so that's what we do. When we contemplate warfare as Christians, what do we do? We stand first, stand firm firstly on truth. We're not, it's not about power and influence. It's about truth first of all. And we stand in Christ's righteousness. We don't stand on our own goodness. Our feet move us towards peace. So we move. We have faith in Jesus to bolster our Courage, so faith. And our salvation is founded on Jesus, not on our, our current leaders and our values, which we wield like a sword by living them out, are taken from the Bible. So we stand first firm on truth. You know, in times of war, the news moves from being truth to propaganda. And how do you know it's propaganda? Well, there's only one correct behaviour, according to the news. Two, it actively suppresses and doesn't consider any alternative views. And three, it makes you afraid. Sound familiar? What's our task as Christians? To not be afraid. Use your brain. Use logic. And when you're asked to do things that are not logical or sensible and which are just absurd, or keep pressing on to find and to live out of truth. We stand in Christ's righteousness. We don't stand on our cleverness. Only a person willing to admit he's a sinner is able to look at truth impartially, you see, because only a person who doesn't have to defend his character, his reputation, because he's standing not in his own reputation, he's standing in Christ's reputation, and he's clad with Jesus' righteousness, and he's an ambassador of Jesus, he's a person who can stand for truth. Only a person without pride is free from the fear of having to save face. The fear of not having to look like a fool. The fear of being wrong. 
our feet move towards peace, we do what we can. We're not passive. We move. We have faith in Jesus because faith gives us courage. You know that shield of faith, that's an offensive weapon. It means go forward because if you turn and run around, what do you get? An arrow in the back. And we can trust that our commander sees what we can't see. He sees the whole picture and we just have to deal with that part of the battle that's in front of us. Our salvation in these times is based on Jesus. It's not on our current leaders. We know that our Premier or our Prime Minister can't save us. Only Jesus has eternal safety in his hands. And so we can sift what we hear from our leaders against the Word of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit because our time on earth will end when the Lord says it's going to end. We don't need to be frightened by the fears which leaders try to foster in us to keep us compliant. We don't need to be like Henny Penny. The sky is falling in. The sky is falling in. I must tell the king. Because our time on this earth is in God's hands, not the king's hands. Our values, which we wield like a sword by living them out, are taken from the Bible. A couple of weeks ago I talked about just the wonderful foundations the Western world has received from the Bible, from this Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And so as we come to approach Anzac Day, let's remember a couple of aspects of how that fear of the Lord, that Christian foundation has blessed our nation. And if you ever read Cole Stringer's books, uh, he believes that we've seen some amazing works of God. He's researched the charge of the light horsemen of Australia on Beersheba, which made it possible to open the way to recapture Jerusalem after a thousand years of, of being in the hands of the Arab world. And he says on the night before, soldiers were reading their Bible, they were praying, God was moving and there was visions of angels, there was a sense of destiny and God was involved in the affairs of those Aussies there and God is still involved in the affairs of us Aussies. His spirit leads us to live and speak truth in a loving way in order to be peacemakers. Ephesians 4.15, instead speaking the truth in love, what do you get out of speaking the truth in love? You become mature in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. We are stirred when we see Anzacs living out biblical values. Let me say that today, heaven is stirred when it sees us living out biblical values. Let's pray. Lord, we see of people trying to live out biblical values. We thank you for the people who gave their sacred blood for our country. We thank you for you giving your sacred blood for the world. 
men and women of all nations. And we bless you for it and we recommit ourselves. We recommit ourselves to the God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the creator of the universe, the saviour of our souls. Amen. Thank you.